The recidivism rate is between two-thirds and three-quarters. Our jails are so ineffective in dealing with the problems that bring those people there that they're back for another stint in a short time. This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. To support the work we do and get commercial-free versions of every episode, plus members-only bonus content, find us on Patreon or visit the Contribute tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The David Pakman Show, Economic Update with Professor Richard Wolff, The Tom Hartman Program, The Young Turks, Ring of Fire Radio, Intercepted, and The Laura Flanders Show. It's great to be joined today by Maya Shenwar, who's editor in chief of Truthout and author of Lockdown Locked Out, Why Prison Doesn't Work and How We Can Do Better. Uh, Maya, I think I'm going to try to get into this with you maybe in a different way, because we, we know about the failure of the war on drugs. We know about the disaster that many of the individual sort of logistics of prison have been for many people. We know about the devastating effect that imprisonment has on the communities surrounding and the families of those imprisoned. So let, let's see if we can work backwards. Is there anything that you feel about the American prison system that is either effective, working well, any silver lining at all? So I think that when we think about this system and when we evaluate it, as opposed to kind of critiquing its flaws, we have to see it as fundamentally flawed. So for me, this is a system that's not just got problems, but it's not working at its core. So this is a system where we see two thirds of people coming out of prison being rearrested in three years. This is a system that is grounded in white supremacy that evolved out of slavery, you know, so even its roots are rotten. It's not just that there are rotten apples on the tree. So to me, I, I don't really see a value in assessing redeeming characteristics in a system that we just have to fundamentally transform. Of course, there are amazing people who work within the system just as they're amazing people within any system, even those that are fundamentally damaging to society. What would be the, the most uh, top level way that one could assess whether a system of incarceration and or rehabilitation, depending on whether you believe that that's the goal, is functioning? Mm -hmm. Would it be that which you just referred to, which is are people after serving sentences uh, leading lives that keep them out of prison in the future? I mean, what sort of barometer could we look at to really say, how, how could we tell if the system was working? Good question. Yeah, I think that that recidivism rate is a really good measure of whether the system is doing what it says it's doing, right? So the system is supposed to be quote unquote, correcting people, right? It's called a correctional system and often a rehabilitative system. So if you have a system where people are simply cycling in and out, then that sort of reveals the lie 
in, in that logic. But also, I would definitely push further than that. I think that we need to look at all of the effects that prison has on both the people who are incarcerated and their communities. So we have to look at, are people being traumatized behind bars, both by the physical and sexual violence that happens during incarceration, very often perpetrated by guards, and also just the violence of being caged as a human being. There's lots and lots of research about the psychological and even physical effects that confinement has on a person and how that trauma is lasting. And also what kinds of effects that trauma has when that person is released to the wider society. We also have to look at how prison impacts communities. And this is something I focus on a lot in my book. When someone is abruptly severed from their family and community, often that person is the primary wage earner in a family. So what is that doing economically to families? What is it doing emotionally to families to have a mother or father abruptly removed from the home? How does it impact children? At this point, there are 2.7 million children who have a parent who's incarcerated, and there are 10 million children who've experienced parental incarceration in this country. So what kind of deep lasting impacts is that having on kids? And I think just thinking about that idea of prison as a cycle, we should keep in mind, you know, kids are impacted in ways that often actually drive them into the system eventually. Children are much more likely to be incarcerated if a parent has been incarcerated during their childhood. Uh, there are those who would hear you talk about the recidivism rate, those who have more authoritarian tendencies, and mm -hmm. they would say, well, m m the statistics that Maya is presenting are right, but wouldn't a high recidivism rate at least warrant exploring whether those individuals should be imprisoned even longer or forever? And while that's not something I believe and intuitively we can sort of understand why that why that doesn't make sense. What empirical data can we look at to tell us that that is not the solution? Yeah, I mean, I think, first of all, we need to look at ourselves in context. So the United States employs, I guess, what I would call the living death penalty, life without parole, more than almost any other country in the world. And most countries don't even have life sentences in the way that we do. We really, we give out life sentences in this way that doesn't acknowledge that effectively we're sentencing people to death. We also just have much longer sentences than most European countries because we have these mandatory minimums, right? For drugs, for guns, for all of these different, these different crimes, we have these rules that we impose on judges saying, if a person is convicted of this crime, you need to impose this minimum sentence, very often resulting in these decades long sentences for sometimes even nonviolent crimes. In fact, Obama recently granted clemency to a number of people convicted mostly on, on crack conspiracy charges who'd been imprisoned for 
over a decade and many of them for several decades. And so I think looking at ourselves in context, first of all, and saying this is an unusual way to operate a system. And if we're having the kinds of recidivism rates that we have, given that we're sentencing people to such long terms, maybe we should start thinking about the idea that prison doesn't necessarily discourage crime. In fact, some would say it's criminogenic. It causes crime. And actually, an increasing number of social scientists are saying, yeah, there's something criminogenic about prison because people go to prison and they're put in a traumatic environment. If you've ever heard the expression, hurt people hurt people, you know, put in a violent environment where there are not you know, positive motivators in their lives. And then they're taken out after years in this very abrupt way and put into a world that doesn't want them, right? Put into a world where they're not being supported, where it's very, very difficult for them to find jobs and housing and educational opportunities, especially if they've been incarcerated for many, many years. And in those kinds of economic circumstances, they're much more likely to turn back to activity that's been criminalized, acts that we consider crimes, just in order to survive. And I, so I think that logic that keeping people in longer somehow removes their motivation to commit acts that we call crimes is, is definitely flawed. And I also think in terms of the idea of doling out more life sentences, yeah. I think at this point, fortunately, almost no one is making that argument. And part of the reason for that is actually financial, that even a number of conservatives now are looking at the criminal punishment system and saying, wait a second, we are spending so much money keeping people behind bars. In some cases, we're spending anywhere from $30,000 to $90,000 per person in prison to incarcerate people. And so every additional year you keep someone in prison, you're just putting more money in that, in that kind of bank account for punishment when it could be going toward all kinds of other services that might actually support people in being able to survive and thrive on the outside. Life in prison got real, real hope. There's a no comments that are next to the cop. Put the gun in the sand. Got so far, for the gun. According to the folks who keep track, it costs roughly $31,000 a year per prisoner to house the number of people that we keep in jail in this country, which, as I'm sure most of you know, is a larger number as a percentage of our total population than any other country on this planet. So we imprison more people, which means we spend a fortune of money, 31000 on average. And by the way, states vary. Some spend a good bit less. Other states spend a good bit more. The $31,000 per person per year in prison average gets us what result? 
Well, there's a word called recidivism. It's a word that basically says what proportion of the people you put in jail, uh, when you let them out after they serve their sentence, what proportion of them are back in jail for committing yet another crime uh, within the year, two, three years after you let them out? In our country, the recidivism rate is between two-thirds and three-quarters. That's right. Two-thirds and three-quarters of the prisoners that we put in jail our jails are so ineffective in dealing with the problems that bring those people there that they're back in there for another stint in a short time. Finally, the horrible treatment of people in jail by one another, by the guards, by the whole establishment, is so much a fixture of our culture that late-night television comedians make a regular habit of joking about what happens to you in jail. And the jokes are not funny when you realize what they are referring to. You might think a program this expensive and this unsuccessful and this terrible for the people involved would have long ago become subject to the withering criticism and the demands for change that it obviously deserves. But if you thought that, you're incorrect. It hasn't. The people who are involved in it hold on. The bureaucrats who run it hold on. The government that enforces it holds on. Let me suggest something. And here I'm borrowing from a famous law in Italy called the Marcora Law. This law is about unemployment. I'm going to explain it in a moment, but it could apply to prisoners as well, to convicts as well, to incarcerated people as well. The Marcora law says to a person, if you become unemployed, you have a choice. Yes, you can get a check every week for a couple of years. We help you out. Or if you get at least nine other unemployed people like yourself together, we'll give you the whole two years worth of weekly unemployment checks as a lump sum right now. You and all the nine or more other unemployed, so together you're going to have a nice bundle of money. We will do that if you use the money to set up a cooperative workplace and commit yourself to make it succeed, to have a job that way because you're giving a job to yourself. It won't cost the government any more than it would have paid you per week but it can make a much better result than having you on the dole for two years with all that does to your self-esteem and all that does to your skills, etc., etc. It's worked beautifully in Italy since 1985. Well, let's now apply it to the jails of our society. The biggest single problem for incarcerated people is what happens to them, or rather what doesn't happen to them, after they are released. With a, re with a record, a criminal record of having been in the jails, it becomes hard, well, impossible for many to get a job. You have to work in a poor job with poor pay. In other words, you're, you have a, two strikes against you because you're in the prison system, and then you find out you have another strike when you get out. Moreover, the jails don't work. Suggestion. That we spend less money on jailing people and more money on providing them with the training and the capital to become 
their own bosses when they come out, set up cooperative enterprises where they will hire themselves, thereby avoiding the whole problem of finding an employer who's willing to hire formerly incarcerated people, making them able to run and be in charge of their own businesses, will show the rest of American society what this model can do. And my guess is many fewer of these people will find their way back in to jail because we've come up with a better way of helping them re-enter and function in society than the one in place now. Now, there are people talking about prison reform and sentencing reform and all that. Listen to this. This is Nicholas Turner and Jeremy Travis. This was back a week ago. It was published in the New York Times. The headline is What We Learned from German Prisons by Nicholas Turner and Jeremy Travis. And it was published on the, op- on the op-ed page. Uh, and I-, I just want to share a couple paragraphs from this with you. It starts out, earlier this summer, we led a delegation of people concerned about the United States criminal justice system to visit some prisons in Germany and observe their conditions. What we saw was astonishing. The men serving time wore their own clothes, not prison uniforms. When entering their cells, they slipped out of their sneakers and into slippers. They lived one person per cell. Each cell was bright with natural light, decorated with personalized items such as wall hangings, plants, family photos, and colorful linens brought from home. Each cell also had its own bathroom, separate from the sleeping area, and a phone to call home with. The men had access to communal kitchens with the utensils a regular kitchen would have, where they could cook fresh food purchased with wages earned in vocational programs. They go on to point, point out, while the United States currently incarcerates 2.2 million people, Germany, whose population is one quarter the size of ours, locks up only 63,500 people, which translates to an incarceration rate, incarceration rate that is one-tenth of ours. More than 80% of those convicted of crimes in Germany receive sentences of day fines uh, based on both the offense and the offender's ability to pay. They base fines on their ability to pay. Only 5% end up in prison. Of those who do, about 70% have sentences of less than two years, with very few serving more than 15 years. The incarcerated people that we saw had considerable freedom of movement around their facilities and were expected to exercise judgment about how they used their time. The process of training and hiring... Oh, and he notes solitary confinement is rare in Germany and generally limited to no more than a few days, with four weeks being the outer extreme. We've got people who have been in solitary confinement for 15 years. He write, or they write, the process of training and hiring correction officers is more demanding in Germany, whereas the American corrections leader in our delegation described labor shortages and training regimes of just a few months. In the German state of Mecklenburg, western Pomerania, Less than 10% of those who applied to become correction officers between 2011 and 2015 were accepted into the two-year training program. This seems to produce results. In one prison we visited, there were no recorded assaults between inmates or 
assaults on staff members by inmates in the entirety of 2013 or 2014. No assaults. That's amazing. Counting local jails and prisons, the United States currently incarcerates roughly 2.2 million people. That's the equivalent of taking the entire population of Wyoming, Montana, and North Dakota and then locking them all up. Not that I'm advocating for that. Not only is that far more inmates than any other country in real numbers, but the U.S. incarceration rate is also the highest in the world at 716 per 100,000. We imprison our population at a rate five times higher than England, seven times higher than Canada, 10 times higher than the Netherlands and 14 times higher than Japan. Even a country like Singapore that's even more insane than we are about imprisoning drug offenders has an incarceration rate less than a third of the United States. Now, companies running privatized prisons acknowledge that their business model is based on increasing prison population numbers. When there's more crime, longer sentences, more reasons to put people in prison, these are all great for the company's bottom line. But not so great for the prisoners or their families or their communities taxpayers, or society as a whole. Then there's the whole issue of recidivism, the rate at which inmates who are released wind up back in prison. Private prison companies pay lip service to rehabilitation, but in reality, they have a powerful financial incentive not to rehabilitate inmates. The more likely released prisoners are to return to prison, the more money the private prison companies make. But it's not just the private prisons in the US that do a shitty job at rehabilitating inmates. With 76.6% of prisoners rearrested within five years, the US has one of the highest recidivism rates in the world. Compared to practically every other developed country, the US penal system is disproportionately punitive, where they deliver lengthier sentences for the same crimes sentencing people to prison for crimes that in other countries are treated like misdemeanors, and punishing inmates who step out of line with stints in solitary confinement. Then you factor in rampant racism, violence, and humiliation, as well as substandard medical care, a lack of mental health treatment, drug treatment, or educational opportunities for most inmates, and you begin to see why a smaller percentage of American inmates are able to successfully re-enter society upon their release. So what part of the world does the best job of rehabilitating prisoners? Well, you may have guessed that one. It's those damned Scandinavians. First, they beat us in cross-country skiing, and now this. Specifically, the leading country is Norway, where recidivism rates are typically one-half to a third of those in the U.S. Contrasting the Norwegian prison system with the U.S. is a comparison of black and white, in more ways than one. First, the prison policy in Norway is determined by experts in criminology, not by politicians looking to outdo each other by how tough on crime they are. As a result, many Norwegian prisons look nothing like Americans associate with incarceration. Let's talk about that for a second. Here's how one Norwegian prison governor described their attitude. Being sent to prison has nothing to do with putting you in a terrible prison to make you suffer. The punishment is that you lose your freedom. If we treat people like animals when they are in prison, they are likely to behave like animals when they get out. Here we pay attention to you as human beings. Now that doesn't really sound like something you'd hear from an American prison warden, does it? And the resulting way Norway designs its prisons, especially to Americans, is nothing short of jaw-dropping. In many Norwegian prisons, there are no bars on the windows. 
Kitchens are fully equipped with sharp objects and cells may have flat screen TVs, stereo systems, and mini fridges. The prisons also may feature barbecue pits, gyms, and communal dining halls where prisoners and staff eat together. Prisoners wear their own clothes while officers dress casually and carry no batons, handcuffs, tasers, or pepper spray. Americans who tour Norway's prison facilities are often dumbstruck by how luxurious, although the Norwegians prefer the term humane, their prisons are. I'm having a hard time believing that I'm in a prison. So where are the hallmarks of the American penal system? We want to know. The misery, the hopelessness, the palpable anger and racial resentment. Where are the tin cups rattling against the bars? Where are the fighting pits where guards gamble on battles to death between inmates? Where's the justice in this justice system? That we are so conditioned to view the horrors of American prisons as normal and to be dumbfounded by the idea of treating prisoners as human beings speaks volumes about our values when it comes to prison and the treatment of prisoners. And of course, in any discussion comparing social policy in the US to Scandinavia, other major differences between the two have to be acknowledged. Norway's population is much less diverse than the US's, and they don't have our long and troubled history of racial and class division. Norway is also mostly a middle-class country with low levels of income inequality, where citizens enjoy a robust social safety net. Well, that's all true, but it doesn't mean that we in the United States have nothing to learn from Norway's prison policies. That we could never adopt the kind of humane practices that have been repeatedly proven to rehabilitate inmates and reduce recidivism rates. The real question is not whether we can, but whether we want to. Are we simply too caught up in a culture of punishment and vengeance and, let's be honest, racial fear and hostility to change? Or are we, at long last, willing to acknowledge that our all-punishment-all-the-time approach to incarceration not only doesn't work and doesn't rehabilitate, but that it destroys the lives of the people we put in prison and, in the process, dehumanizes the rest of us as well? Hi everyone, I just want to talk to you for a minute about Amazon. This is not your average commercial, I have some things to share. If you're not aware, I've been advertising for Amazon for years now, and the basic idea is that I have requested that you bookmark my personal affiliate link to use every time you shop. And what that means is you don't pay any more, but I get kickbacks of 7 or 8% on whatever you buy when you buy things. It's a really simple, easy painless way to support the show. And I just wanted to put a little bit more meat on those bones. Amazon has really turned into an incredibly powerful fundraising tool for the show. And and it's no surprise that so many shows you listen to use the same tactic. So with that in mind, you may have heard me talking recently about reassessing the show and how many episodes come out each month and how much work goes into it and how I can maybe make things better and and shift some things around. Uh, Maybe that means more volunteers. Maybe it means hiring an associate producer. You know, there are a lot of options right now, and I'm, I'm trying to keep my options as open as possible trying to uh, look to the long term and sort of throw everything at the wall and see what fits and sticks and and come out on the other side of a maybe you know readjustment or a reorganization stronger and better than ever and as part of that i figured let's make sure we are grabbing all of the lowest hanging fruit 
And what I realized today is that Amazon is one of those things. It is really, really low-hanging fruit. So, uh, you know, as I said, I've been advertising it for years, and a lot of people use that link, and it generates a surprising amount of money. It fluctuates month to month, but it can be anywhere from a fifth to a third of the income of the show in a given month. It's really amazing. But with that said, I am confident it is still a very small percentage of the audience who has actually bookmarked that link and uses it with any sort of consistency. And so I wanted to come to you just this one time, make a big show of it, tell you all about the inner workings and my thoughts on the idea, and and really ask that you take a moment and bookmark the link. So to make it extra easy for you, I've put the links in the show notes themselves. So it'll be on your device. You can stop walking or running or pull over to the side of the road or do whatever you need to do to safely access your phone or device while listening to the show. Look in the show notes and see that there is a special link there for the U.S. store, the Canadian store, and the U.K. store. All you have to do is bookmark that link right now while you're thinking about it, and then it'll be there forevermore. And every time you shop Amazon, just use your bookmark instead of typing it in. And if everyone listening were to do that, and then went about your regular lives shopping exactly as much as you ever would have, it would be a transformational amount of money that would be generated to support this show and keep our options open, as I say. So again, just check on the show notes. It's on your device right now. Bookmark that link right now while you're thinking about it, and let's support and fund the show, get it on the best financial footing we possibly can, getting it ready for the future, whatever the future holds. So, David, uh, we spoke to Donald Cohen, who wrote um, uh, the the first installment of the privatization uh, series that uh, Talking Points Memo is, has uh, has published. And you've written the one about the uh, private prisons. And um, the I think, you know, to a large extent, people are aware of the issue of the privatization of prim- prisons. Uh, and you uh, expose sort of the exponential problems that are created by this but let's just start with the 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 basics in terms of the private prison industry um it is probably the i don't know ground zero of the privatization movement i mean is there even any activity left in that sector or have we moved on well one thing that was really interesting to me when i did this piece and it it was kind of a little bit different than where I was coming into it, was to see this as really about the privatization of the entire criminal justice system, not just prisons. In fact, prisons might be the lowest concentration in terms of privatization. When I say the entire system, I mean every contact between an individual and the criminal justice system, those functions, those core functions, from the time that you are picked up and uh, released on, on bail, that system is entirely privatized, to when you're transported 
from uh, the, 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 the courtroom to a prison cell, that transportation system is privatized, to any single thing you might do inside a prison, eat, uh, buy uh, things at the commissary, talk on the telephone, go uh, have a video chat with uh, your, your, your loved ones uh, in a visitation room. Uh, uh, any service at all is privatized. And then when you leave, the parole system, the halfway house system, the sort of they call it uh, uh, police, uh, community policing, uh, that is privatized. Those systems, the ankle monitoring for uh, if it's not bail, it's uh, you know GPS monitoring so that you don't leave the the the, the city or the state. That's privatized. And uh, really, the number one thing, the, the way in which these companies, the big companies, uh, uh, can, uh, Cor- Corrections Corporation of America and Geo Group, the really the way they make their money now is federal contracts for immigration detention. As the criminal justice debate has become a little less uh, polarized, and, and you see on both sides of the aisle opportunities to reduce the population in our nation's prisons, the immigration debate has become much more polarized. And that has provided an opportunity for these companies to snap up the uh, administration of these immigration detention centers. 45% of the total revenue from CCA and GEO Group come from federal contracts for immigration detention with ICE, with the Immigration and Customs Enforcement. And these are immigrant detention facilities, and they're also uh, what they call family detention facilities where women and children who are seeking asylum are kept uh, in, in, in these very large facilities in the Texas desert. Uh, so it's not just private prison. That's almost a misnomer to say it's the private prison industry. It's the privatization of the criminal justice system. Every part of it soup to nuts. Attorney General Jeff Sessions issued a memo calling for the government's continued use of private prisons, reversing an Obama administration directive to phase them out. Don't believe for a second that Attorney General Jeff Sessions' announcement that he was canceling this Obama-era order uh, aimed at uh, ending the use of private prisons in the U.S. is not related to the anti-immigrant tornado that is whipping across this country. The Correctional Corporation of America and other private prison companies stand to make a killing as a result of Trump's emerging policies. And they they thanked him. They thanked him by kicking in huge sums of money for his inauguration festivities. To discuss all of this, uh, I'm joined by a great investigative journalist, Shane Bauer, who writes for Mother Jones. 
Uh, Shane spent four months working as a guard at a private prison in Louisiana, the Wynn Correctional Facility. He's also embedded with militias, and he uh, spent more than two years in an Iranian prison after being snatched from Iraq, where he was reporting. Shane Bauer, welcome to Intercepted. Thanks for having me. Okay, Shane, you got hired by this private prison as a guard, uh, despite the fact that you uh, submitted a completely truthful application. You didn't hide who you are. You didn't hide that you're a journalist. You you weren't undercover per se. Uh, you submitted your real resume to to this company. And why do you think it is that they didn't seem to do any diligence on figuring out, you know, is this a person that should be uh, working in this prison? The job pays $9 an hour. They're very desperate for workers. Um, so, you know, I got the sense when I was doing interviews, it was almost like they were trying to convince me to take the job. Um, the The person I was interviewing with in Louisiana asked me if I'd like to uh, hunt and fish. And she said, um, people around here like to squirrel hunt. And, you know, so there's, there's a lot of forest around here if you, if you want to do that. Wow. That that sounds like a very probing question to make sure they're not hiring an unhinged <laughs> person to be around prisoners. Um, yeah, I mean, most of the people that worked there were, uh, you know, just kind of poor people from the town that needed jobs. It was kind of a mix of kids right out of high school, you know, 18, 19 year old kids and uh, a lot of single moms, you know, that just kind of needed to get uh, health insurance. And and then there were some kind of uh, war veterans and uh um, some police veterans that, um, you know, couldn't really uh, find other work. And, and what what uh, what were your biggest takeaways from your experience working as a, a private prison guard? Um, I mean, it was very clear being inside that prison that the, uh, you know, profit motive had a really significant impact on the prison. Um, you know, the, the, the guards uh, pay was a big issue that was much lower than uh, the other prisons in the state and the low guard pay, you know, leads to issues of understaffing because even in that poor town, people would not didn't want that job. Um, they a lot of guards, uh, you know, sell drugs and, and bring contraband into the prison to just make ends meet. Um, Health care was really impacted. Um, I met a guy who lost his legs to gangrene, which he caught in the prison. Um, he uh, had been complaining for months of, of severe pain, going to the doctor, and they would just give him Motrin and send him back. And eventually, um, when it got very severe, he was sent to the hospital and had to have his legs amputated. And I saw this this kind of issue come up a lot where uh, people were complaining of serious ailments, um, but were not sent out to the hospital. And uh, when when prisoners are sent out to the hospital, the company has to pay those expenses. And when they're making, you know, 30 some dollars a day for for a prisoner uh, from the state, you know, it's it's a major expense uh, to pay a hospital bill. Um, security was really low. I mean, the, the company had been cutting positions to save money. I mean, there's constant pressure to lower costs. So like the guard towers were empty, for example. Um, I, I, there was a, a prisoner who escaped while I was there, just hopped over the fence in the middle of the day. You know, everybody there, uh, prisoners and guards that I met outside of the kind of high levels in the administration, um, really hated this company. And they would kind of uh, bond on that sometimes. I would see guards and prisoners uh, kind of talking to each other about, 
you know how how uh, screwed they felt by the company and and how so what what's the um, economic model behind this I mean how how are these private prison corporations making their money so typically um, the states will pay a per diem fee for each prisoner so every prisoner you know in Louisiana it was thirty some dollars a day in California it's sixty some dollars a day uh, so that's that's the bulk of the the money that's coming in but the companies are also traded on the the stock market. Um, so, you know, they're, most of the investors are, are banks and, and mutual funds. In the week after Election Day, stocks of two major private prison companies increased dramatically. You know, we saw when, when Trump was elected, um, CCA stock rose dramatically. It was the, the highest uh, raising stock in the entire stock market, um, probably because of um, expectations around immigration policy. Um, you know, if... if more people are going to be detained than, um, you know, potentially more detention centers are going to need to be built. And uh, CCA and, and the other major company, Geo, would probably uh, be trying to run those. And and um, more recently, you had the Attorney General, um, Jeff Sessions, uh, reversed uh, an order that was issued last year by uh, President Obama that effectively said uh, that the government is supposed to phase out the use of private prisons. When, when, you, when you heard that news, what, what were the first thoughts that came to mind in terms of the implications of this or what this indicated to you? I was not surprised by the decision, um, but I will say when when the first the Obama era decision came through uh, to stop using private prisons, that was very surprising and significant. I mean, it meant that twenty some thousand people were not going to be living in these prisons that have been much more violent. Um, they're you know bare bones um, holding tanks essentially, and so it was significant that you know this this number of people were not going to be there. And I think as soon as, as Trump was elected, that was one of my first thoughts, that um, that decision is going to be reversed, like many other decisions and kind of moves forward um, have been. And, you know, Sessions, there were a couple of Sessions aides that uh, became lobbyists for one of these companies. There's a huge revolving door. Um, and, you know, I think it's notable that these actions are being taken, um, given that private prisons are so unpopular. I mean, there are very few defenders of, of private prisons in this country. Um, this is also a time when uh, our prison population is declining. Uh, there's been a lot of kind of bipartisan consensus on the need to reduce the prison population and to make some major changes. Um, and I think when the original decision to stop using private prisons came through, a lot of people felt like that was, you know, a major step in kind of reforming our prison system. And, you know, there doesn't seem to be a lot of support necessarily for for these kind of decisions that the Trump administration is making. I feel it in the air, washing over me. The soon I'm of the tide, will drag us all to sea. Cause now we're traveling back.
As the prison industrial complex continues to grow, there are more and more industries that stand to profit off incarcerating people or taking advantage of the fact that they're behind bars. One example of that is how various prisons throughout the country have done away with person-to-person, face-to-face visitation and have substituted it with either video conferencing or calling people. So this is a pretty disastrous story because video chatting with people that are behind bars might make sense for someone who's in a different state or far away, but apparently prisons are just doing away with face-to-face visitation altogether. In fact, over 600 prisons in 46 states have some sort of video visitation system, and every year more of those facilities do away with in-person visitation. So this is disastrous because whether you know it or believe it or not, in-person visitation has a lot to do with recidivism. If an inmate has family members or friends that provide a support system for him or her, it's likely that that individual will remain behaved while they're behind bars, they'll get out, and it's less likely that they're going to come back to prison. Okay, So there was a case of uh, one woman trying to do a video conference with an inmate that was a friend of hers, and here's what she had to say about it. This, was, this happened at the Travis County Prison in Texas. It's just too much frustration to come down here, wait for an hour, and then get 25 minutes for a not-so-good call. I think the hassle is why people don't visit as much anymore. First, reading on this about this story, uh, as with most people, you get tricked into thinking that this might actually be a good thing mm-hmm. uh, because you're like, oh, they get to Skype in. Um, and so sometimes uh, your loved one will be serving time in, in a prison that's really far away, it takes you an hour to get there. Sometimes it's across many states, uh, you, you couldn't possibly get there, right? So, and by the way, when they were pitching it to legislators, that's how they start the conversation, mm-hmm. right? And in fact, in, so, in one case, in, as Mike.com explains in, in this article, they tricked one of the officials by saying, oh, yeah, yeah, no, totally. Of course, you can also visit. And then it's... Soon as you've agreed, they're like, oh no, if you read the fine print, you're not allowed to visit anymore. It's only the Skype calls. And by the way, we're going to charge you an arm and a leg for those calls. And that's where the prison industrial complex comes in. I mean, these aren't the regular telecommunications companies that we're dealing with, right? It's not Verizon or Sprint. Uh, these are specifically companies that work for prisons. And the way that they get these prisons to sign contracts with them is they offer kickbacks. Okay, so yeah, exactly. So here's what happens. There are three companies that dominate the prison communications business. Uh, There's Securius, there's Telmate, and Global Tel Link, also called GTL, the Verizon ATL and Sprint of jails. Okay, so apparently a sweeping survey of families by the Ella Baker Center showed that more than one in three families goes into debt just to cover the cost of keeping in touch with their loved one. Of everyone pouring money into those systems, 87% are women. Okay, so they're trying to get in contact with their loved ones, and now that in-person visitation isn't available for all these prisons throughout the country, they have no choice but to pay these ridiculous fees, in some cases a minute, uh, a dollar per minute, just to communicate with these people. So that's a deterrent, right? If you can't afford it, you're not going to do it. And, and a lot of the time, as you all know, it's not even necessarily that they mean badly by it. It doesn't work, mm-hmm. right? And so you get the and you'll drives you crazy, right? And then you think they've got good uh, customer complaint line? <laughs> <laughs> They're like, yeah, 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 dude, you're talking to a prisoner. 
nobody in this society cares about prisoners. We treat them as less than human. No, I don't give a damn that you couldn't actually use it. I'm going to charge you a dollar anyway. I got the entire government behind me because I'm going to give you a kickback for them. So here's what we mean by kickbacks. They say it's not a bribe and it doesn't go to an official, but it goes to cash-strapped local governments. Mm -hmm. They go, okay, now we'll make these, you'll allow us one, a monopoly, so nobody else can compete. I thought these guys were all in favor of free markets. What happened? Uh, when it comes to uh, robbing all, us all blind, no, they don't care about the free markets. They love crony capitalism, right? And all the politicians go, yeah, yeah, yeah sure, 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 do that. Yes, they'll also get donations to the politicians. But then mainly they go, okay, now of the money we robbed from these folks, we're going to share a small percentage with you guys. So they'll get a couple million dollars back mm -hmm. from the enormous profits they made. And then this local government goes, oh my God, like, you know, that's $2 million. Or if it's a giant you know, county or, or, or region of, of, a, of a state like Texas, it might be like $15 million. And then you get hooked on the $15 million. Now they're making a hell of a lot more than that. And they're making it off the poorest people in the country. And you sh not the prisoners, it's usually their loved ones, their moms, their wives, their girlfriends, because 87% of the time it's women, right? Mm -hmm. And then they got to go into debt. And then that vicious cycle. Uh, kicks in, but hey, uh, all the powerful people are making money. Yeah, and not only is there the debt, there's the issue of recidivism. So let's take a look at the next graphic because it shows you just um, how much of an impact it has on debt, and then we'll get into the numbers on recidivism. So according to uh, the research, about 2.4 million people are confined or incarcerated. 34% of families do go into debt to cover the cost of communicating, just simply communicating with these inmates. 87% of family members uh, responsible are women, as we've mentioned, and $1 per minute is the typical cost of video visitation. There's also um, email communication that serves as an option in some prisons, and what they do is they force the person sending the email to pay for a digital stamp, almost as if it's in-person, you know, real-life postage. It's also um, phone calls, so if you call on the phone, uh, you'd have to pay per minute, similar to how you would do it with the video chat. And in some cases, it's more than a dollar a minute. Now, the incredible anticipation and fulfillment of knowing they care enough to come can be the difference between you comporting with the rules and being more human and aware and knowing the consequences of your actions and being willing to moderate and understand them. That's according to one person who was behind bars for over 20 years for a crime that he committed. And he said, hey, the only thing that kept me going was my family visiting. That's the only thing that kept me well-behaved behind bars. That's the only thing that kept me away from going back to prison when I got out, having that support system available. So I want to go back to graphic five because I want to give you those two stats at the bottom there that goes to the point of recidivism and what they do inside prisons that's so important. After just one visitation, in-person visitation, there's a 13% reduced chance of committing a new crime and 25% reduced chance of technical violations. So if they get the visitation, they're less likely to do crimes outside and commit violations inside prisons. So by the way, one of the reasons that they give to do this is, oh, we're gonna save costs. If there's an in-person visitation, well, then you're going to need more security guards. This way you don't need as many security guards as we save across. No, it turns out in reality, when you don't get visitations because we're human beings, people get frustrated, especially as the screen goes and then they get sent back into jail. And it turns out based on studies, there are more violations and fights within the prisons, which guess what? Costs more money. So at the end of the day, the prison has to pay more money 
to because the number of incidents and and punishment and security guards and fights and all that stuff goes up because you're not allowing them to have human contact with people that they love, right? But it's okay because the government made a little bit more money, the politicians got some yeah. contributions, and these private companies that have a monopoly made a ton of money. So who cares that we're grinding these people down into the ground and and just crushing their will to live and their spirit? And then we're surprised that they that they they, they act out and there's recidivism. Oh, who cares? But one last thing about that. Remember the prison industrial complex doesn't go. Oh, yeah, you're right. The downside is recidivism, but we but at least we got paid. No, they think that's one of the upsides. Yeah, because recidivism means they're coming back into jail and then they make more money. Now, those are two separate issues because this could happen in a public prison as well. This, you know, video messaging that we're talking about, mm -hmm. and on that, but it all. Everybody's trying to make money off the slaves, I mean prisoners, right? Who are put in there for the very dangerous things, a lot of them for smoking marijuana, which our last one, two, three presidents have admitted to doing, right? But very dangerous, very dangerous. But if you're powerful, yeah, don't worry about it. If you're powerless, they'll grind you and grind you and humiliate you and crush your spirit and make all the money off of you. And by the way, some of this video messaging, what remember what I said in the beginning? Well, at least if you were really far away. No. Yes, that happens sometimes. Other times, they make them drive to the prison and then do the video messaging from the other side of the wall. And on top of everything, guys, yes, they've committed crimes. That guy served 20 years, etc. But they're still human beings. We've lost sense of our common decency and humanity. And so, who cares? Who cares? Don't let them see their loved ones. And let me make it a little bit more real because it's not in this story, but I always remember the story of the woman who had the three strikes eventually got so bad that we made a big deal out of it. A lot of other people made a big deal out of it, and Obama eventually didn't pardon her but commuted the rest of her sentence. Her, her ex-husband or boyfriend had planted drugs in her house and blamed it on her, and it was just easier to prosecute her, so they put her away for life. Okay. Uh, so she finally got out, but after serving an enormously long period of time, and she had three kids. The only thing that kept her going was every once in a while she'd get to hold her kids, and so she'd get to see them grow up. So she had a baby when they first put her away, okay. And by the way, the first two strikes were minor usage of drugs, like oh she smoked pot, like all of our presidents. Mm -hmm. She did this, and then. And then, but she at least she kept going and she fought hard. She got a degree, you know, she did all the right things and she got out. Now, because of the new way of sucking money out of the system and out of all of us, now they say, no, nah, you're not going to get to see your kids. You're not going to get to hold your kids. You're not going to get to do any of that stuff because we got another buck to make. One other thing about that is that it's another form of taxation. And, yeah. And, yeah. And one of the victims here uh, talks about that. And, it just shifts the taxes from the rich to the poor and middle class and goes, okay, well, that 2 million or 15 million that the local county or government is going to make, well, they could have done, got made that money from the local corporations that have business there. They could easily afford it where they make giant, giant profits. Uh, but no, we're not going to do that because yeah. they already paid off our politicians. Instead, we're going to take it from you 
And then when you can't pay your debts, maybe we'll put you in prison and go through this whole thing again. Yeah, and it's the perfect crime for corporations and politicians that are in favor of doing away with these visitations because no one cares about inmates, right? When you really think about it, even liberals, this is not a, a partisan issue. People think of inmates as throwaways. And so no one's going to raise their voice about this. No one's going to stir the pot. And that's the depressing part about it. Okay. Okay, look, I'm also a little bit guilty of this um, and because. Uh, in the past, I've thought, look, man, we, there's a thousand issues that we got to go tackle. Prisoners uh, is is not an overly sympathetic case for Americans. It's a tough issue, so let's prioritize the other things above that, right? Well, I'm done with that because uh, for a number of reasons, including all the stories that Anna's uh, brought to us and cover we've covered together in the second hour. Also in New York, I just uh, saw this great guy uh, give a speech about. Um, in New York, how they, they've just turned it into a machine, right? Like we've seen in all these other states. But in New York, it's only one of only two states, I think North Carolina is the other, that at 16, they automatically try you as an adult. You can't smoke a cigarette until you're 21. You can't uh, drink alcohol until, you can't have a beer until you're 21. Uh, but if you uh, commit any violation, including smoking pot, uh, at 16, you're an adult. You're an adult. And you're going to adult prison, you're going to Rikers Island. It's amazing. Right? And then 16 is not an adult. Yeah. And then those prisons are enormously violent. They and then they teach criminality and it goes round and round and round. And and now we know, we know that Nixon's aide, Ehrlichman, said, yeah, obviously we started the war on drugs to get hippies and black people, because they were our enemies. And to to this fucking day, we're doing it anyway. The whole system is it's not incidentally racist. It's built on racism. Okay, and you know sometimes we talk about that. You know they go after liberals or whatever. In this case, the war on drugs. The whole point was to target two sets of people: blacks and liberals. Okay, so every day that you don't fight back against that system, you know you tolerate a gross, gross injustice. You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, tell your senators to support the Video Visitation and Inmate Calling in Prisons Act of 2017. As you just heard on today's clip from the Young Turks, prisons across the country are replacing in-person visitations with video calls. According to a 2015 report from the Prison Policy Institute, 74% of local jails banned in-person visits when they implemented video visitation. Obviously, this is all about money. The video visitation industry has been working hard under the radar to nail down contracts, shut down traditional in-person visitation rooms, and require families to pay up to $1.50 per minute. Meanwhile, millions of people use video calling every day for free via companies like Skype. 
The video visitation technology in prisons is typically poorly designed, does not work well, and makes a trying and limited time for families even more challenging. And ironically, the visitor will still need to take the time to fly or drive to a facility to sit at a terminal to talk to their loved one if they don't own a personal computer. To address this injustice, this month, Senator Tammy Duckworth introduced an updated version of the Video Visitation and Inmate Calling in Prisons Act of 2017. The bill would require the FCC to regulate the use of video visitation and inmate calling services in correctional facilities, protecting incarcerated people from the elimination of in-person visits, the high cost of calling services, and substandard video calling technologies. So call your senators today and ask them to support this bill and spread the word about the video visitation industry within in your networks, and on social media. For more information on this bill and the impact of the video visitation industry on the prison system, visit the Prison Policy Initiative at prisonpolicy.org visitation. Technology has come a long way, but the intimacy of talking face-to-face -face still cannot be replaced. Children especially need that FaceTime with their parent or loved ones to ensure bonds and connections are not lost during the time apart. But right now, an unregulated cottage industry trying to milk the system can take all that away. The segment notes include all of the links to this information as well as additional resources, and as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the Activism tab at bestoftheleft.com. So if stopping the corporate abuse of families and inmates caught up in our injustice system is important to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about supporting the Video Visitation and Inmate Calling in Prisons Act of 2017 via social media so that others in your network can spread the word too. of the television bust out of your self-imposed media prison there's a whole big world out there y'all and some serious stuff is going down civil war intolerance aids obliteration the usual madness but not enough frustration about what's troubling earth's nations the spotlight will not be your savior in these dark days and it will not be your saving grace why not replace your dreams of gracing life's stage with action what got a person locked up, no matter what, in 1790? Piracy, period. At the birth of the Republic, mandatory minimum sentences were a rare and targeted thing. Attacking and robbing ships at sea got your life. No ifs, ands, or buts. What gets a person a mandatory minimum sentence today? Any one of 261 different crimes. Princeton professor Naomi Murakawa took a look for her book, The First Civil Right, How Liberals Built Prison America. In that, she chronicles how for the first 200 years, Americans managed somehow to get by with only a handful of mandatory minimum laws. Those governed specific federal crimes. Refusing to testify before Congress would get you a month, bribing a federal inspector six months, forging a U.S. seal a year. It wasn't until the 1980s that Congress started passing mandatory minimums left and right. And we do mean left and right. Two terms of tough-on-crime Reagan and Bush Republicans added 72 new and expanded mandatory minimum statutes. Clinton's two terms added 116. A third offense of carrying a firearm now brought a mandatory 15-year term. Possession of five grams of crack cocaine a five-year mandatory minimum. 
Quoting Joe Biden in 1994, Murakawa reminds us of the liberal Democrats' approach to all this. Quote, the liberal wing of the Democratic Party is now for 60 new death penalties, 100,000 cops. The liberal wing of the Democratic Party is for 124,000 new state prison cells. This, let's remember, is the period that saw black versus white racial ratios among the imprisoned go from 3 to 1 to 8 to 1. Tripled between 1985 and 2000, the number of mandatory minimum crimes engorged the prison system and locked up, especially women, mostly women with children. In Murakawa's book, the list of mandatory minimum statutes on the books in 2010 runs to 20 tightly typed pages. The perils of post-war liberal law and order are worth recalling now, says Murakawa, when demands for reform are loud but modest in scope. It's not rocket science why the U.S. has the world's biggest prison population by far. It's our policy of imprisoning. The solution's not kinder, gentler incarceration or better oversight. It's an entirely different approach. We've just heard clips today, starting with The David Pakman Show, talking with Maya Shinwar about why prisons don't work. Professor Richard Wolf on Economic Update talked about the high cost and terrible results of our prisons and suggested a new program for newly released convicts. Tom Hartman described the German prison system. Then The Young Turks described Norway's prison system. Sam Cedar on Ring of Fire Radio talked with David Dayan about the privatization of the entire criminal justice system. Intercepted spoke with Shane Bauer about his time working in a private prison and the Trump administration's decision to reverse the Obama policy to phase out federal private prisons. The Young Turks discussed the banning of in-person visitation now being replaced with high-priced video calls. Our activism for today is to tell your senators to support the Video Visitation and Inmate Calling in Prisons Act of 2017. And finally, we just heard the Laura Flanders Show explain that we don't just need a kinder, gentler prison system, but a whole new approach. You can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now, we'll hear from you. Hey Jay, it's Alan, a member from Connecticut, calling in. Uh, just listened to the last episode and your commentary and getting the humor and your wisdom regarding conservatives and gender fluid and everything else. But had a comment because, you know, sometimes I just can't keep quiet. And that's a comment of caution. You know, I get the humor and I understand what you were, you were stating, but I think also as progressives, we also have to be careful that I see way too many times people defending themselves and being right. Kind of like if you're at your job and you've been recommending that, that we do this and we do this and we do this because it would be a better way to do things than everything else. And you've been doing that for years and nothing happens. And then all of a sudden one day your boss comes to you and says, hey, I think we're going to do this because it's going to do a better way. So you can sit there and argue with the guy or the person and say, hey, uh, I've been saying that all along. You're just finally catching around. Or you can just say, 
hey, what a great idea. Yeah, let's do that, because that's going to make everybody's lives better. And so, hey, if the conservatives are going to turn around and say gender fluidity is a thing now and let's go for that, hey, I'm all on board, you know? Yay, great. You can have that idea. I'll give that to you as your idea. I can care less, but let's just move in that direction, you know? I, so many times I just see people, they have to be right, they have to drive the point home. And it's got to stop. It's got to be like the bottom line is the bottom line. What's best for everyone? Anyway, that's my thought, you know, for a happier world. Hope everyone's well. Stay awesome. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Quick response to uh, Alan from Connecticut. I I agree with the point he's making. I I I definitely think that we need to accept people when they come around to the right way of thinking and not perpetually shame and criticize them for having been wrong in the past. The problem with the article writer that I was referring to is that he didn't come around to the right way of thinking. I mean, sure, okay, great, you have a slightly more nuanced understanding of the fluidity of gender and sexuality, but his conclusion was as set in stone as it was 40 years ago. His argument boiled down to the idea that if gender and sexuality is so fluid, well, then people in the LGBT community, whatever aspect of fluidity they fall into, they don't deserve to be considered a class of people who are deserving of equal rights as everyone who does not see themselves as part of the LGBT community. And so if hey, if your gender is fluid, then I guess mine is too, and same with sexuality. So, hey, my fluidity just happens to fit into heteronormative gender and sexual roles, and yours should too. If you're so fluid, why don't you just flow your way on over to my Judeo-Christian concept of the life you should live and the family you should hold, and let's all just be happy with God's vision. So no, you don't get a cookie for being half right and coming to a buffoonishly wrong conclusion. Interesting side note, for anyone who remembers, during the Republican primaries, the the never-Trump people were in a panic trying to find an alternate person to ride to the rescue and save the day and beat Trump in the primary. And William Crystal, who is one of the most famous conservatives for the sheer number of times that he is wrong about everything, most prominently the Iraq War, he said, I I have an announcement, I have big news, I have our savior. David French is now going to be the leader of the Republican Party, and the entire country, who was paying attention, which is a small percentage, but let's say the entire country collectively said, who the fuck is David French? And then David French was like, yeah, I don't think I want to run for president anyway. And no one ever heard about it again. And we just added another thing to the list of things that William Crystal is wrong about. And no one ever talked about it again. But I was amused to read that article and see that it was penned by none other than David French, the, the near savior of the Republicans. 
Now, one other note, I actually want to play another voicemail for you, but this one needs a little bit of uh, explanation. There was a, a call recently about uh, there's a transgender uh, article about detransitioning, and a woman called in from Seattle saying, "Hey, maybe you didn't know, but there was actually controversy about that." And you know, one of the things wrong with it is that it talks about the concept of transgender social contagion. And that's been a pretty well debunked concept. And so it really shouldn't be talked about. And she, so the, the caller just mentioned that and sort of moved on. And I thought that deserves a little bit more exploration. And when I need to explore something a little bit more, stretch my legs more than I have time to do here in the main show, I go to the members. So Amanda and I had this discussion with the members talking, uh, you know, sort of at length. I, I gave my long-winded, detailed explanation of why I think that transgender uh, social contagion is absolutely a thing, and it makes all the sense in the world why it would be a thing, and you'd have to come to me with an unbelievably logical and well-backed-up argument uh, to convince me otherwise— And to be clear, what I am not talking about is what ridiculous scaremongers would probably say, which is that if we let people be transgender, then your kids will be swayed into being transgender. And you imagine like a little boy who's totally stoked about being a little boy and he's super excited about growing up and being a boy and being a big strong man and buying a truck and he loves his penis and can't wait to do fun stuff with it. And then he sees a transgender classmate and is like, huh, all right, I thought I was totally psyched about being a boy, but maybe, no, that's ridiculous. That's the sort of transgender social contagion people want to scare you into thinking exist. That's ridiculous. The actual transgender social contagion can be explained like this. Imagine a genuinely transgender person. This I've made up this person so we can know with 100% certainty they are transgender. Put that person in one universe in which transgender, like the, the entire concept of being transgender does not exist. And you put them in another universe in which being transgender not only exists, but is welcomed and expected and part of nature, and we all recognize it as being just one of the interesting quirks of humanity, and people are transitioning and fellow students are are transitioning. In which of those universes do you think it's more likely for the person to come out as transgender and declare that they should themselves transition? That is what I mean by social contagion. Just awareness of the concept is an important factor in a person coming to the realization that they themselves are transgender. And when it is more accepted, people are more likely to see themselves in that phenomenon. So that is the incredibly shortened version of the conversation we had on the Members Only Bonus Show. And now this is Aaron from Philly, a regular caller, who is responding to that conversation with a couple of really excellent points. One, talking about the original article itself and how like-minded people should probably respond to generally like-minded people uh, who say something they disagree with differently than when you're responding to people who you fundamentally disagree with and who are probably attacking you with malice. Uh, Those two things should be addressed differently. And then also her own story of transitioning. 
So to finish out the show, uh, please forgive the audio quality uh, on the cell phone here, but I think it's an important story to hear. So to finish the show, here's Aaron from Philly. Hi, Jay. It's Aaron from Philly. I'm calling about bonus show number 66. As far as the article that you discussed, I read the same article uh, you have quoted around my social media world. And the only thing I have to add to that conversation is it's one of those little axioms that you're thrown around, and it's something to the effect of, don't attribute to malice what can be better explained by ignorance. And I think when it comes to intra-progressive conversation, that that's sort of a thing that gets lost. And I totally understand why. When you're talking to your opponents all the time, when you're talking to conservatives or the religious right or whoever, and you know they're not speaking from ignorance, that they are, in fact, speaking from malice, that you want to respond in a particular way. And it gets hard to get out of that habit. And so when someone on your side, you know, and it's totally on your side, and it's not speaking maliciously, but it just makes a genuine error out of ignorance, it's just easy to fall into that trap of responding the same way. So I guess if, if I had any advice to folks um, having those conversations, that would be yes. And then on the last note, I just want to endorse by way of anecdote and origin story, and I apologize because I know origin stories are the worst part of superhero movies. Endorse your uh, simplification about the transcontagion hypothesis and use myself as an example of person A, a person who's totally trans, but you know, depending on the universe they grew up in, would respond to it differently. I actually grew up in both universes because the universe shifted around me as I was going through transition. You know, in middle school, when I was first beginning to realize, you know, there's something not right here about my life, and that thing is the fact that, you know, I'm about to go through puberty in the wrong direction. I had no concept that trans was a thing. This was in the mid-90s. I didn't have internet at home. There was nothing in the library that I could look up. There wasn't really anything uh, on TV or in the movies for me. And so I just had no concept. I didn't know what to do. I just had this idea of, huh, I'm really supposed to be turning into a woman, and that's not going to happen. I don't know how to deal with that. And then I went to a, a locally, there was a, a youth group for gay and lesbian teens. And I went to that group, and I'm going to use some outdated terminology, or what I think would be considered outdated terminology today, but this is how the person identified. There was somebody there who identified as a transvestite, a male cross-dresser, somebody who dressed, uh, was assigned male to dress in women's clothing for pleasure, you know, and just felt more comfortable that way, but had no desire to transition. But the thing is, the fact that that was even possible, that somebody who grew up as a boy and lived as a man, but could just be a woman when they felt like it, that blew my world open. Um, I, I came home from that youth group meeting, and all of a sudden, I'm, I'm just realizing, wow, this is something that, you know, I just never believed possible, and, and now I know what direction I want to go with in my life. And, and then eventually I got to college. I was able to do more research because I had the internet. And then I figured out, oh, look at that. You know, transgender is a thing. Transsexual is a thing. That describes who I am. So I went from universe A of having no concept 
to Universe Beat, where as soon as I met somebody who better explained what I was going through, boom, there it is. And so I guess, Fury, you could say that, uh, you know, I caught the trans from this person that I met at the Queer Universe. So, uh, you know, for what that's worth, I think, you know, at least there's one anecdote in support of your hypothesis. So... Hope you and Amanda are doing great, and uh, you know, keep up the great work, both of you. And it's a cry and shame. How we get so trained.